Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the chance to talk to the two authors of Asymmetric Politics, Ideological Republicans, and Group Interest Democrats. The book is published by Oxford University Press. The two authors are Matt Grossman and Dave Hopkins. Matt, how are you doing? Doing very well. And, and Dave? Great. Glad to be here. Yeah, such a pleasure, Matt. I think you are you are our first in the three timers club on the podcast. Uh, if my if my uh, memory uh, serves me, Dave, this is your first time coming on the podcast. So I wonder maybe we can start and give you the chance to very briefly introduce yourself. Sure. Well, I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm uh, assistant professor of political science at Boston College. And uh, most of my work is on political parties, elections, and other American political institutions. Great. And and Matt, since you were last here, you you have had some uh, additions to your your uh, professional life. Why don't you uh, remind us about yourself? Uh, I am now the director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research, and uh, still a political scientist at Michigan State University. Yeah, wonderful. And um, thanks for sharing the book. It's it's such an interesting book and such a timely book to get us started in uh, in 2017. Uh, before we get to the argument of the book and asymmetric politics, I wonder if we could start by talking about what symmetric politics would look like. Um, Dave, at least in theory, what would a political system look like where parties operated in symmetry with each other? Well, I think that um, a lot of the time when we talk about political parties, especially in the United States, we kind of assume that there is more symmetry than we re- than there really is. For example, we sort of assume that the parties have um, similar composition, similar organization. Um, we also tend to assume that strategically – they are acting in similar ways to achieve the goal of of power or influence over policy or electoral success. And so we often kind of treat the substance of what the parties stand for and the specific groups and interests they represent as different, obviously, on the left and on the right. But we sort of often assume uh, both as academics, but also certainly uh, journalists and pundits and, and other observers of American politics assume that a lot of American politics are interchangeable. Whatever you say about the, the Democrats, you could just as easily say about the Republicans. Or if, you know, if there's polarization going on like there is right now, we sort of often assume, sometimes explicitly state, other times implicitly suggest that really both sides have contributed equally to it. It's played out pretty much the same uh, in the Democratic and Republican parties over time. And when there's 
uh, blame to assign, which often when we talk about political parties, we are talking about them in a negative way. There's too much partisanship. There's too much polarization. Then the blame, of course, is therefore almost by definition equally apportioned 50-50 to one side and to the other. And so the the sort of vision of party symmetry, I think, is is one that 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 a lot of us have had historically in our minds. Um, and even as I say, political scientists, when we want to create theories of parties, when we want to create theories of politician behavior, of the way institutions like Congress operate, we sort of want to create theories that apply to both parties. You know, we only have two parties in the United States, and so there's there's certainly an appeal to um, trying to describe and analyze them as much as possible as being sort of more or less the same, just mirror images on each side of the ideological spectrum. And so part of what Matt and I have done in this book is try to question that assumption and at the very least suggest that that deserves a lot more uh, empirical scrutiny than, than it's often received. Yeah, and so as such, your argument is that we have in the U.S. a system that's far from this symmetrical uh, pattern um, that we have asymmetric politics, um, but that asymmetry comes in different forms. Matt, broadly speaking, uh, would you talk a bit about how this manifests itself in ideology and then also in the arrangement of social groups? Yeah, so Dave and I uh, started this project with just a, a long list of differences we found between the parties that we thought were underappreciated. Uh, And in the end, we decided that there was really one uh, big, all-encompassing difference, uh, that the Republican Party uh, was uh, more governed by a symbolic ideological movement, and the Democratic Party was more a coalition of social groups, uh, each with particularistic uh, policy concerns. Uh, But that doesn't mean it manifests itself in the same way uh, everywhere. So, Uh, Some of the more easily identifiable places are like the media, where uh, on the right, uh, there is an identifiable conservative media uh, that uh, uh, sells itself as as such and views itself as in competition uh, with an alternative uh, liberal uh, media. Uh, on the Democratic side, you really see nothing like that. Uh, you see certainly disproportionately Democratic audiences in some uh, media organizations, uh, but uh, nowhere near as popular uh, or uh, all-encompassing as you see on the right. Uh, and you instead see just a variety of uh, media outlets used in, by Democrats uh, and uh, more deference uh, to the media as independent arbiters. Uh, and uh, more trust in mainstream media uh, among Democrats. Uh, So we see that as an important difference, but we see it as a manifestation of this larger difference between uh, the political uh, uh, parties. Uh, We also see it, though, in places like uh, Congress, where it uh, is sometimes uh, harder to discern. We see uh, the Republican Party uh, as more uh, united uh, by symbolic uh, ideology by the cause of moving public policy broadly to the right. Uh, but when it comes to actually putting those principles into practice, uh, we see a lot of governing uh, challenges, a lot of disagreements. 
Uh, on uh, the Democratic side, we see a coalition of uh, social groups, each with its own uh, policy concerns, uh, that each has a congressional leadership to speak uh, on its behalf. So we see that in the racial coalitions of the parties, but also in uh, specific interest groups like environmentalists. Uh, and so the Democratic Party's problem in Congress is more assembling together all of those disparate interests into one uh, coherent agenda uh, and selling that agenda uh, to uh, the American public as a whole rather than in bits and pieces. And so we see the same uh, differences manifest in campaigns, uh, in the organization of the parties, and in public opinion. Uh, but those are just two examples of how uh, it uh, plays out in specific cases. Yeah, and, and, and Dave, you guys write a number of times that this political system allows both parties to speak for a majority of the citizenry, and in many cases they, they claim that. Now, in terms of the electorate, what does public opinion tell us about how voters reflect this, this type of party ideology and political groupings? And, and maybe you could reflect a little bit on, on how far this goes back. Is there a long history to this, or is this a more relatively new phenomenon? Well, it, it's definitely got a long history, and I think one of the things that, that surprised Matt and me when we wrote the book, we sort of started out with a book that was really about politics today and politics in the very recent uh, recent history in, in our own experience. And the more we, we dug and we were sort of encouraged to, to do so, to sort of dig back and see the roots of this asymmetry, we found a lot of evidence that it's, it's been around a while. Um, this is not a new phenomenon, and this is a, a fairly enduring pattern in American politics. And public opinion is certainly one example of that. Um, many people may be familiar with the uh, the finding that goes back almost 50 years now to the, the Free and Cantrell uh, work in the in the 50s and 60s. It sort of suggests that if you're trying to characterize American public opinion as a whole, that the American public is sort of operationally liberal and uh, ideologically or symbolically conservative, meaning that when you ask people about ideology, are you a liberal or conservative, put yourself on a, on a spectrum from the left to the right, or do you believe government should do more things, or is it too big? Sort of at the, at the most abstract and largest, broadest level, most American citizens sort of collectively wind up to the right of center. But on the other hand, if you ask about a lot of specific policy questions, especially domestic policy questions like, should there be more money devoted to Social Security? Should the government have a role in assisting people to gain health care? Should the government uh, uh, regulate uh, private businesses more stringently for worker safety, for environmental protection, and so forth? Well, then you see a different picture of the American public where it looks a lot more uh, left of center. And even in uh, recent years, somewhat famously, the Tea Party movement, the members of the Tea Party movement that are supposedly so devoted on a principled level to, you know, uh, uh, shrinking the size of government, uh, a lot of those specific members, in fact, think that uh, that should not apply to Social Security benefits or Medicare benefits, which may, they may be the uh, personal beneficiaries of, right? Keep your government hands off my Medicare. So, what that means strategically for the parties is that each party has an incentive to try to uh, shift the debate in a campaign or in a, in a battle over public opinion to its own turf. Um, Republicans want to talk abstractions. They want to talk broad symbolic uh, themes. They want uh, the, the, the 
debate to be about should we move things to the left or the right? Should we have conservatism or liberalism? Should we have bigger government or smaller government? Democrats want to talk specifics. They want the debate to be specifically, should we cut these entitlement programs or privatize them? Should we, in, should we invest more money in education, public education? Should we help people get childcare or pay for college or, uh, you know, pay for, uh, you know, pay for other kinds of uh, benefits? And so if we look at the way campaigns are, uh, run in this country and we look at what uh, what candidates actually say, both in their advertising and when they are in public debates and, and speeches, uh, we see that the language that are used by each party reflects the strategic advantage of that party. Republicans want to talk about the big picture and Democrats want to talk about the policy specifics. And that just sort of reflects the fact that public opinion itself is somewhat ambivalent with respect to uh, to ideology, depending on sort of the level of specificity. And so because this is such a long lasting uh, pattern in American public opinion, it means that for a long time, the parties have, have sort of respected that, have sort of uh, uh, tuned their strategy to to exploit it and have in some ways reinforced it. Right. Democrats have not spent a lot of time trying to get people to identify as liberals or to talk about what's so great about liberal ideology because they don't see that as in their interest strategically. And so that just sort of reinforces the uh, the asymmetry that, that we uh, that we identify. Now, Matt, even though these some of these patterns have long histories, some aspects of this are, are relatively new, including the political media that you described before. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about some of that research um, that that you've done in in um, chapter four, I think, uh, that talks about uh, some of these differences that show up in how political media is is produced and also consumed. Well, uh, one thing that goes back a long uh, a long history since the 1950s, there's been a more uh, uh, identifiable uh, media on the right uh, for broadcasting in talk radio uh, and. Um, uh, there uh, has been a more diversified media in the Democratic side, and it has always been the case that Republican elites have been more distrustful of the uh, mainstream uh, media than Democratic elites. Uh, but what uh, the Republican Party and the conservative movement accomplished uh, since the 1960s uh, is to sow the distrust that they had in the mainstream media uh, to the wider conservative uh, electorate, uh, and alongside uh, to convince that electorate to rely on explicitly conservative uh, media outlets uh, in instead of trusting uh, the mainstream uh, media. So there was always an elite distrust, but it was uh, uh, moved uh, to uh, the, the the public, uh, the, the conservative side uh, of uh, the public. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, while that occurred, obviously the conservative media uh, got stronger uh, with uh, the rise of uh, Rush Limbaugh in the 1990s and Fox News Channel uh, in the 2000s, uh, so that uh, now you really do have a large section of the Republican electorate uh, that uh, relies uh, overwhelmingly uh, on explicitly uh, conservative media. We tell in the chapter uh, a, uh, a similar story of the conservative mo movement's reaction to academia. Con conservative elites were always uh, also distrustful of uh, people within universities uh, being the experts uh, to uh, set 
uh, about uh, identifying public problems and evaluating uh, potential policy solutions. But uh, they were, again, able uh, to uh, uh, convince uh, the Republican electorate as a whole uh, to be more skeptical uh, of uh, the role of experts, uh, particularly in academia, uh, and alongside that to build an alternative community of experts in the think tank world that similarly uh, held a, a comprehensive and identifiable conservative ideology so that they could say, well, um, you have your experts, but we have our experts, uh, and they uh, believe different things uh, and uh, have accumulated uh, different types of evidence. Uh, so uh, in, in both of those cases, uh, there was a long history, uh, but uh, the conservative movement achieved something real in uh, translating uh, its uh, skepticism of the liberal establishment uh, to, uh, uh, to convince its public supporters uh, in a self-reinforcing way that they needed to rely on explicitly conservative alternatives. Now, now, Dave, this all makes total sense to me, um, but seems like uh, this this uh, has to be adjusted in some ways for Donald Trump. I wonder if you could fit his campaign and his looming presidency into this story. Has he followed? Uh, does he reinforce the the story that you tell in this, or, or does he open up some new uh, and unusual patterns? Uh, fit Donald Trump into this. Sure. Well. The, the main way that Trump is sort of different from a lot of previous Republicans is that his campaign rhetoric did not really center around anti-big government themes to the same degree that previous Republicans ha- have done. And Trump, of course, is not a, a you know sort of born and bred member of the conservative movement the way that many previous Republican candidates uh, have have been. And so Trump in some ways, to his advantage, kind of sidestepped questions about um, whether he wanted to uh, uh, privatize Social Security or whether he wanted to cut Medicare or these other sorts of of economic uh, issues that the Democrats often criticize Republicans for and that Obama criticized Romney for four years ago. Um, But in a lot of other ways, Trump isn't so different uh, as he might first appear. He certainly campaigned a lot more on broad symbolic themes than he did policy specifics. Um, And that's very much consistent with previous Republicans. It's just that his broad symbolic themes were not necessarily so much about individual liberty and, and the threat of of the of the state as they were a sort of aggressive American nationalism and kind of ethnocentrism and a symbolic nostalgic appeal to make America great again, right? To re- return to some sort of uh, uh, mythologized past uh, in American politics. Um, it's also the case that Trump, to the extent that we can see what kind of administration he's putting together, is putting together a pretty conservative administration. I mean, if you look at his appointees, even starting with his vice presidential selection, Mike Pence, uh, and looking at the other people who are staffing his cabinet, we don't see a lot of moderates in there. We don't see a lot of people with lots of sort of neutral policy expertise and credentials uh, there. We see a lot of people who, um, you know, seem to be uh, coming from non-governmental experience or they seem to come from the military um, and there's not a lot of emphasis placed on 
um, you know, prizing the smooth functioning of the bureaucracy as sort of the primary uh, goal of government. Um, and so, you know, if we sort of look at what Trump is doing rather than what he's saying, the picture seems to be of, of a presidency that may be just as conservative, if not more so, than the previous Republican president, George W. Bush. And, uh, you know, if you look at the Republican leadership in Congress, which, of course, is also going to have a hand in setting policy for the next four years, uh, similarly, at least we see a very conservative uh, leadership there as well. And so um, Trump, in, in, a, in a several kind of superficial ways is is a break with with uh with the pattern but we don't really think he's so much of a of a different uh different character as as some people are are suggesting and uh even since the election uh I think you've seen much less of Trump distinguishing himself from the rest of the Republican party and much more sort of uh going along with a lot of what the Republican party and the conservative movement uh would already uh sort of expect or or uh or, or, or ask for in a presidential administration. And Matt, what about Trump's relationship to, to organized groups and, and the social groups that, that in the past have seemed to be um, de-emphasized on the Republican side? Is the pattern the same there? The uh, campaign uh, rhetoric that Trump used uh, certainly uh, made uh, more explicit references to social groups uh, than most uh, prior Republican campaigns. Uh, interestingly, uh, the advertising data from lower level elections did not show any of the same shifts. So it seemed to be uh, Trump alone uh, making uh, some shifts uh, in that direction. And uh, surprisingly, the greater uh, shift in uh, that respect uh, was on the Democratic side rather than on uh, the Republican side. Again, not one that was really reflected in congressional uh, or other kinds of advertising on the Democratic side. But uh, Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign uh, was uh, still overwhelmingly about groups, uh, but a a uh, much uh, a bigger shift away from class-based conceptualizations uh, and toward uh, uh, racial uh, groups and other uh, kinds of uh, uh, social groups. Uh, so uh, both campaigns, both presidential campaigns shifted uh, their group rhetoric uh, fairly substantially from previous presidential campaigns, uh, but uh, not in ways that were reflected uh, in uh, the wider uh, political party. Uh, in terms of his relationship with those groups in his presidency, uh, I, I haven't seen a lot of sign that you'll see any kind of a, a democratic style uh, governing uh, system where we bring in, uh, for example, like on the Obamacare negotiations, the Democrats brought in, you know, all 10 sectors of interest groups to work together uh, to write the bill, to satisfy different interests, uh, to satisfy uh, uh, constituency groups in uh, Congress, like the Congressional Black Caucus and the pro-life uh, Democrats. Uh, we haven't really seen any sign that that kind of governing style will be taken up by Trump, where he'll bring in uh, different kinds of groups uh, within the Republican coalition with organized leadership speaking on behalf of different constituencies uh, to try to meld together uh, legislation. So, so far, uh, just more group rhetoric in the campaign from Trump. Yeah. Again, the title of the book, Asymmetric Politics, Ideological Republicans and Group Interest Democrats. Uh, Matt Grossman, David Hopkins are the two authors and Oxford University Press is the publisher. 
Thank you guys so much for your time today. It was a pleasure, Heath. Thanks for having us.